At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Welcome to Healthcare Americana, coming to you from the Freedom Doc Studios. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We talk to innovative clinicians, policymakers, patients, caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. We take you behind the scenes with people across America that are putting patients first and restoring trust in American healthcare. So many times trust in American healthcare is really comes down to a policy decision. So many people look at the government to help fix just the headaches that are numerous and relatively unknown. And if anybody's obviously listening to this show, I'm not a huge fan of that argument that, hey, government, come help and save me. Um, Going back to what Reagan's famous quote was, hey, I'm here from the government. I'm here to help. Scariest five words anybody can ever hear. Six words, five words. Anybody who can count, shoot me an email later. Today, joining us on the show is Jonathan Wolfson, the Chief Legal Officer and Policy Director for the Cicero Institute, a think tank that focuses at the state level, but Jonathan also has some exposure to the federal level. Tell us a little bit more. Well, first, welcome to Healthcare Americana. I'm getting ahead of myself, Jonathan. I apologize. It is a pleasure to be talking to you today. Chris, thanks so much for having me today. Now, I always love talking to think tanks, policy people, because we get involved a little bit here. Usually we get pulled into conversations on the state level, even at the federal level. And people are saying, holy cow, what you guys are doing is amazing. You're, you're, you're taking all this stuff that we thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool? What if, what if, what if? And you guys are putting it into practice. Like this is real. The free market is flourishing in healthcare. How can we replicate this? And I usually laugh and say, well, you just need to get out of the way is usually my answer to them. So that leads to more conversations. Tell us a little bit more about your work and then, you know, your work as it relates to the Cicero Institute. And I mentioned that it focuses on the state level. And I get excited for this, these kind of conversations because so many people look to the feds as, hey, this this can only be, you know, cured at a federal level, a one size fits all level. And that's usually the worst tact to take. Yeah, Chris. Well, so at the Cicero Institute, we focus on trying to come up with innovative kind of entrepreneurial solutions to public policies problems. We were founded by some folks who left California, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists who left California and moved to Texas. And part of our vision is how do you find ways to get the market to function just the way you say, it, right? We want the market to function in a way that really allows people to innovate and come up with the best ideas. We want competition of ideas. We want accountability in government. If government says they're going to do something, they should do it and do it really well, or they should get out of the way and not do it at all. And those are kind of some of the founding principles that underlie what we're doing. And so when we look at healthcare, the healthcare marketplace is different from every other marketplace 
in the world, and especially in the United States, it's different. And there's not necessarily a good argument that it should be different. But in fact, we've put all these restrictions and regulations and all these rules in place that make the healthcare market not function the way that you would assume a typical market functions. Joe Lonsdale, who founded the Cicero Institute, he put an op-ed out a few years ago where he said, imagine you sent your teenage kid into a car dealership and you said the first car that you put your hand on, that's the one you're buying and we're just going to hand them our credit card and pay for it. No one would ever do that with a car, even if they're buying a really expensive car. But that's what we do with healthcare more often than not. And so that's kind of the founding principles that we live on. And we focus on the state level because, to your point, the states allow you to be innovative and try to experiment with things. Sometimes there are solutions that you need to test out one or two places before you say, hey, this could be a national solution. But in fact, more often than not, people forget that, yes, there are lots of ERISA plans for employer-provided health insurance. It's federally regulated. Yes, there's Medicare. But a lot of Medicaid rules get set by the states. A lot of small businesses and individuals are on health care markets that are completely regulated by the states. And so the states have a huge role to play. States are in charge of licensing physicians and nurses and all sorts of other healthcare practitioners. And then they often come up with a lot of the other regulations for how healthcare is actually delivered in their state. And so we focus on trying to come up with solutions at the state level because there really are opportunities to get things done. There's a lot less gridlock. Most people in the state legislatures, even if they have kind of divided government, are a lot more interested in trying to get something done to try to solve problems. They're not just trying to, you know, pander for the cameras. Now, just to be contrarian, just for a second there, because I've heard this argument at state level, and, and I totally agree with you that state, you know, you have people in there making these laws that you might run into a coffee shop. I mean, they're, they're much more, what they do, they, they have to listen to their constituents because they're much more approachable, they're much more accessible than anybody at the federal level. But every time I hear something at the state level, they're saying, well, you know, there's certain certain interests that fight us on any type of transparency rules or non-compete rules, and it's the same damn associations every single time. But then they all also like to pass the buck and say, well, yeah, instead of this hard fight, you know, it'd be really nice if the feds did X, Y, Z that helped our lives, you know, whether it's tax treatment for health savings plans, whether it's tying Medicare dollars and federal dollars to delivery of certain, you know, Medicaid expenses, that type of stuff. What do you see when you go into a state, you know, you're talking to assembly men and women, you're talking to legislators on a state level where they say, you know what, I love what you're doing, Jonathan, I love the Cicero Institute, but if the feds did this, this, and this, it would make our lives a whole lot easier to continue that innovation. And that happens all the time, Chris. You're absolutely right. There are lots of problems that can only be fixed with the federal solution, right? To your point about how do we treat the tax treatment of health insurance dollars? States can't solve that because that's a federal law. It's, you know, there's, there's some great history on that about kind of a, the accident of how that came to be back in the time of wage controls back in the 40s. And we're stuck with kind of that decision that wasn't really even a decision to this day. And so some things have to get fixed at the federal level. But one of the things that we say to those legislators is that is true. Some of these proposals could be done at the federal level or may even need to be done. But there's so much that you can do at the state level to address some of the rising cost challenges, to address the challenges of access to health care. And if you take those steps at your state level, you can be innovative and show the rest of the country it's possible. And then who knows if those solutions really are working, the federal government can follow along and just do what they're supposed to do, kind of take those laboratories of democracy, see what's working really well. And if those things could be scaled up to do nationally, then the feds can do them. What are you seeing that works? What, what kind of initiatives are you guys working on in what states and what, what, what are you really hopeful about? 
Yeah. So the Cicero Institute has kind of two arms. We've got a 501c3 arm that does nonprofit development of policy ideas and lots of research, kind of the more the typical think tank. But then we also have a 501c4 advocacy arm called Cicero Action. And the Cicero Action, we hire lobbyists on the ground in states. We're in about a dozen states. We'll be growing to around 15 to 20 by the end of this year. And we hire lobbyists on the ground in those states. We work directly with legislatives in those states, usually legislative leadership, but we work with any legislators on both sides of the aisle who are interested in the reform ideas that we have come up with. And we work with those lobbyists to actually advocate to get those done and to help draft the bills, help to come up with the collateral that those legislators may need in order to promote the bills, and then ultimately work with them on implementation on the back end. So we don't just kind of help you get it done and then walk out of the state and say we're done, but we say, how can we be helpful to you now that you've passed this law and you're putting your regulations in place, which, as we all know, can sometimes be the devil that's in the details. What state are you seeing as like really forward thinking and really receptive to your ideas? On the healthcare side, there's a handful of states. I'd say that Utah, Arizona, Tennessee have all done some really innovative things. Florida's got some interesting things that they're attempting uh, this year and last year. Uh, so there's a number of states that we're working in that are really trying to kind of be that tip of the spear to go out there and try something that other people haven't necessarily tried because they realize that this system is in need of so much reform that coming up with some new things may be the best solution. And it's like once you get one of those states to go, everybody else just kind of becomes copycats. And, oh, gosh, I don't know what the number is, like 32, 33, 34 Republican governors out there out of the 50 states. And I would imagine that once you get across, you know, something across, something that works, something that's beneficial across the finish line, it's like, hey, guys, it's it's rinse and repeat, adjust for, you know, how your population sees fit. But do you get the sense that it, like, it takes one or two and then everybody, then the dominoes start flying behind it from a state level? That's absolutely right. The first question that we almost always get asked when we are testifying before a legislative subcommittee or a committee, or even when we're in meetings with legislators is, what other state has already done this? And sometimes you have to say, no one has done it. And that's why your state needs to do it. That's always a much harder conversation than the conversation that says, yeah, they've done this in seven other states. No one's died. We haven't had doctors start practicing totally outside of their licenses. We haven't had kids who are you know, getting sick as a result of these solutions that we've presented. And so that is a challenge. But I think that there are some states that actually want to be that tip of the spear. They're interested in saying, we want to be the first to get out there and try something that nobody else has done, because we really do think that there are solutions to these problems out there. We're chatting with Jonathan Wolfson, the Chief Legal Officer and Policy Director at the Cicero Institute. Jonathan, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from our great sponsor, Freedom HealthWorks. If you are struggling to convert interested people into members of your direct care practice, you are not alone. The top challenge reported in direct care is patient sales. Whether you dread potential patient calls because sales just makes you uncomfortable or because you are simply occupied with taking care of people, Freedom might have a great solution for you. The Enrollment Desk service includes a dedicated patient sales team for your practice across all U.S. time zones, live data measuring your total calls, leads, conversions, answer rates, and more, and full prospect tracking from first contact through membership so nobody ever slips through the cracks. Contact Freedom HealthWorks at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com to chat with a team member or schedule a demo. Now we're back to joining our conversation. Again, Jonathan Wilson, Chief Legal Officer, Policy Director of the Cicero Institute. So Jonathan, 
what again I love and and this is me kind of gushing fanboy for different organizations and, and what they're able to do and the more I learn about it the more I like it the Cicero Institute isn't just saying hey wouldn't it be cool if we did this and this and this you guys have put together basically what I'm going to consider like a sample legislation called the Patients Right to Save Act give us some more idea about what this is and and really what it includes hitting the highlights yeah, the Patients' Right to Save Act is an attempt to take price transparency to the next level. You know, I've been working on healthcare since early in my career back in the Bush administration. And one of the things we talked about in the early 2000s was if only people had price information, then they could be good shoppers. And that's true. People could be good shoppers if they had that price information. And there's a lot of solutions that have stepped in over the interim 20 some years. But one of the most interesting things that we see is that the vast majority of patients who are in more traditional health insurance plans have very little incentive to use that price transparency information. So you've got a problem right now of hospitals that aren't even following the federal law and revealing all their prices. So we've got that challenge. But as more and more states and as the federal government really do force the transparency of prices, we need to find an incentive to actually encourage patients to use those financial incentives. And so the Patients' Right to Save Act is a model bill that we put together. We've got a white paper that Josh Archambault from our team and I put together. The The goal of the plan is to help people want to use price transparency. And the way we do it is really do three things. The first is we require that providers publish their the cash price they would take, the direct pay price that they would take for the services that they offer. And so this obviously doesn't include the the emergency care treatments, but anything, you know, if you've got a colonoscopy, if you've got a knee replacement, what's the price that you would take as a cash price for that service? Second, we require all the insurers and the patients now have the information about what the insurers charge, what the doctors would charge, and then patients are allowed to go out into the market if they find a lower cost cash price than the lowest negotiated rate from their insurer, they can go to that direct cash pay price in or out of network. And the insurance company has to count it toward their deductible. And then the third, and this is kind of really where the rubber really meets the road for the highest spenders, is once you've exceeded your deductible, if you find a lower cash price than the lowest negotiated rate from your insurer, you not only get that counted toward your out-of-pocket max or your your co-insurance, but you also get to split the cost savings with your insurance company. So a real quick example, if somebody finds a knee replacement that's $20,000 less than the lowest negotiated rate that their insurer has in network, then they're going to get the knee replacement covered the way it would typically be. So if they're above their deductible, but they have a 20% coinsurance, they're going to pay a portion of it, but they're going to get to split that $20,000 cash savings with the insurance company. So they're going to get a $10,000 check from their insurance company for saving the insurance company $20,000. And we think that this really will incentivize patients, especially those highest spenders who often know before the year starts that they're going to exceed their out-of-pocket max and really have no incentive whatsoever to be cost conscious. This will give them a real financial incentive to go out and actually find lower cost care, which, as we know, is almost always equally valuable in terms of quality. We know that cost and quality are unfortunately not correlated or sometimes are even correlated in the wrong direction. (laughs) To quote uh, our wonderful nurses and doctors when we had our second child, healthcare is significantly cheaper when you don't use insurance (laughs) to purchase it, right? I want to unpack one of these kind of because you just laid out a, a, a one, two, three kind of initiative here within the act that you mentioned there. So first, you know, when you're talking about all hospitals, health systems publish cash prices. That is technically supposed to be happening right now. 
And I want you to put on, you know, your your attorney hat, your lawyer hat. When you were back in, in I, th- I think you said you were in the Fifth Circuit of Appeal. You know, you're at federal courts and you're hearing these types of cases. What comes to mind when you just see voluntarily? Uh, I mean, you see these hospital systems as voluntarily giving the middle finger to the law of the land. Yeah, it's it's a strange world that we're in, and you know, often you see that people are not willing to follow laws if the incentives are not right. You know, and this is one of those places where incentives just were not set up correctly. The the hospitals truly believe, despite the fact that they are required by federal regulation to now publish the direct pay prices that they have, they believe that will cost them more money or more reputation than it would simply cost to pay any fines. Now, part of that is because HHS really has not been aggressive in issuing fines. You know, there's only been I believe two fines issued for failure to disclose. There have been a handful of hospitals who've received letters kind of saying, hey, here's a reminder you need to disclose. I think the most recent data is we're somewhere around 20 to 25% of the hospitals are actually fully compliant with the law. So one of the things that I think you're going to see, and this is part of why we've got this as part of our plan, is you need some penalties at probably the state level to encourage some of these hospitals to actually do what they're required to do at the federal level, because the penalties at the federal level are clearly not high enough. You know, I tell people all the time, you could eliminate people speeding on the road if you wanted to. You could just have a million dollar fine for every time you got caught speeding. No one would ever speed again. But we've got a lower fine because we understand that this is not the most important thing in our society. Similarly, if you really want the hospitals to reveal these numbers, then you have to impose sufficient fines that they're going to actually want to step in and do it. You know, Texas last legislative session passed a law that imposed some additional fines on hospitals for not disclosing prices. What's interesting is when it was actually implemented by a regulation, instead of the fine as the legislators intended stacking one fine on top of the other, they actually said that those fines were one-time fines. And so I know that there are some legislators in Texas who are putting in legislation this session to explicitly tell the regulators, no, we really did want those fines to stack so that these hospitals could be on the hook for many, many millions of dollars if they're not disclosing their prices. Right. And that to me is like a gateway, right? Like, okay, we make this rule. People say, "Uh, well, screw it. Uh, I'm not going to follow the law. I think that just disillusions so many average Americans out there that's like, well, what in the world? Like, I can't put a deck on the back of my house without going through the proper paperwork here because the city's going to be crawling up my rear end. Yet, national legislation, everybody's just very publicly, eh, whatever. It doesn't matter. And I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's kind of like the, the romantic in me of this republic mindset that that law is even and distributed. You know, there's a fair hand coming back there. And again, like going back to what I just said, it's like a gateway because, you know, I'm looking at point two, patients receive credit towards their deductible, even point three that, you know, if there's a savings where people, that's a lot of burden put on the patient to access that information when most doctors are either unwilling to ask, you know, what pricing is or can't find it themselves. How do you square that away with if hospitals won't play ball, how can people get more involved to I guess, educate themselves and find those cash prices that they can't get from the insurance company. And it's hard. You know, I've been living this this life, this industry for the past six, seven years of my life. It's still hard for me to be able to go out and do that. And then the average American, I, I, I'm sympathetic to them. For sure. And I think that one of the 
reasons that we think that this plan would work is we think that there's a lot of innovators out there who, if those data exist, and we'll, we'll caveat that those data do need to exist, right? But assuming that those data exist, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who would say, we will be a clearinghouse. And sometimes these entrepreneurs may even be the doctors themselves. You could absolutely see a direct primary care doc or even just a you know kind of typical primary care physician who would say, hey, I am going to help you as a patient navigate this because we already know how to interact with the insurance company. We know how to do the paperwork. We already have that system set up. But now there's a way for you as a patient to save money yourself and to even make money if you have a chronic condition or you have a high spend year. And so we're going to help you navigate the system. Maybe even a lot of those companies would be willing to front the money. H&R Block has this model for tax returns. People have a complicated tax return. H&R Block says, we'll front you a portion of your refund because we are so confident that you're going to get the refund because we know how to navigate the process. Doctor's office could say, we will front the money for that knee replacement because we know that it's going to be reimbursed because we know how to do the paperwork well. We'll front you the money and then we'll take, say, 10, 20% of the shared cost savings as kind of our fee for that. And we, in the model legislation, have an explicit rider that allows entrepreneurs and innovators, third parties to step in and play that role to help transform that transaction. So I think that helps smooth it. I think the other piece of it is, like as I said, you have to have this information out there. And I think that as more and more states step in and say, we're going to piggyback on top of the federal law, I hope that this is one place where I hope the states don't try to do their own unique thing. I think that we need to say we're going to have the same disclosure requirements as the federal government. You don't want to have kind of two entirely separate disclosure worlds where they have to reveal one thing for the feds and one thing for the states. That's going to create a huge burden for the hospitals, for the doctors. But if they all are legally required to disclose something, the insurance companies have to legally disclose something saying, if you fail to do it, we, the state of Tennessee, or we, the state of Arizona or Texas, we're going to impose penalties on you as well. That's going to start creating incentives. And those those penalties can be big or those penalties can even include licensure, right? There's lots of opportunities for the states to step in and really add teeth to force that information to be disclosed. What do you say to a hospital system right now? They're making headlines for laying off doctors, laying off nurses saying, hey, we are you know, coming hat in hand. We need more money. We can't survive like this. And now if they're non-compliant, we're going to say, great, boom, penalties of millions of dollars. Are they going to point the fingers back at the state and say, look at these bad guys up here. They, sh- they close this hospital down. I'm sure that that will be the argument that the hospitals will use. You know, what's, it, what's fascinating is that in most situations, businesses understand that disclosing their prices is not going to destroy their market. There's no law in the books that says that the grocery stores have to tell you how much they're charging for a bag of apples, but they all do it. And the reality is that doctors, while they have unique skills. And obviously, they have very valuable training that they need to pay for. And I have no qualms about saying doctors deserve to get paid. The reality is that disclosing their prices is not going to destroy their business. It's going to force them to actually interact with the market the same way that other multi-billion dollar industries have to interact with the market. And they would be able to do it. You know, there, there are plenty of direct primary care doctors who are surviving and doing just fine. Surgery Center of Oklahoma, there's lots of examples of doctors who have followed this path who are not bankrupt. They're not sitting in a corner asking where their next meal is going to come from. The reality is this is where the market is moving. And if we don't move in a direction like this, we're going to likely see costs continue to go up to a place where, unfortunately, and you and I talk to people all the time who are kind of 
philosophically aligned that they don't want the government to take over healthcare, but people start worrying that if things continue to get out of control, it just becomes easier to let the government take it over, which is not an ideal situation. And then those hospitals are going to be in a much tighter squeeze than they are even right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to dig in on that one. Like you just said there, you, you beat me to it because I always have this question in my mind. And, and you know, as our time together here comes due, I'll, I'll use this as, as kind of like our last, our last topic here, Jonathan. Are we racing to, I'm not even sure if inflection point is the right way to talk about it, but you've got insurance premiums peaking 24, 25K for a family of four per year. Most of that burden is on employers. And so employers are saying, why do I have to pay this? I can't afford to do this. But the feds are saying, yeah, you have to. Are we reaching an inflection point very soon where the bulk of the dollars coming into health insurance is coming from commercial payers, where there's an absolute revolt? Maybe maybe it's the commercial insur- uh, the the employers who say, you know what? I don't want to obey the law anymore, just like the hospitals are disobeying the law. When that happens, do you foresee dominoes start to hit? You know, an employer says, nope, we're not going to pay uh, for insurance plans anymore. Everybody go figure out what's going to be best for your family. We're taking that off of our books. We're getting out of the healthcare world, even though we make widgets over here. The insurance companies are probably going to feel that ripple effect when I think 180 80 million, 80 million, 180 million commercially insured. I should probably know that. But when you take those people off the rolls, I just see this cascade and... Like you said, I don't want that to be the knee-jerk reaction of this is why we have you know the ACA. This is where individual markets come from. What's your take on it? Where do we go? What's going to be happening in the next few years as this thing comes to a head and those costs continue to escalate? Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. And there are so many angles we could take to kind of address this. One thing to think about is that, as you mentioned, so much of this cost is being borne by the employers. And for small and mid-sized employers, it is becoming an ever and ever larger portion of their compensation budget, right? And people wonder why wages for the employees don't go up very high. One of the big drags on employee wages, especially at kind of middle income levels and below, is that employers who are paying for health insurance are really facing massive increases in costs on that end. And so you've got an employer who may own a mechanic shop or a plumbing company and the workers want to know why they're not getting a wage increase. And the reality is the employer says, I'm actually increasing your compensation by $2,000 this year, but I'm not able to pass a single penny of that along to you because it's all going to Anthem or whatever insurance company we're going to. And so I think that unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of small and mid-sized businesses starting to look at the situation. And while they philosophically oppose a single payer, they don't want the government getting more involved in the system, they start to say, I'm going to throw up my hands and just say, I'm willing to deal with the fact that this is going to be worse for everybody because it's becoming such a headache for me every single year to sit down with my insurance broker who says, we've got another 15% increase in your costs. And so I think it's a huge challenge. And what's crazy is this isn't only a challenge for the small and mid-sized businesses. Bigger businesses, you know, the Walmarts of the world are looking for ways to try to cut their healthcare costs, right? Walmart has created some innovative plans inside of their health insurance plans where if you have certain procedures you need, you are required to go get a second opinion from a center of excellence. They are doing everything they can to try to reduce their healthcare costs. And ultimately, lots of these businesses start to look around and say, is this really a competitive disadvantage for us as compared to our international competitors, as compared to our domestic competitors? And so really, policymakers need to be cognizant of the fact that if we don't 
come up with some solutions to really bring healthcare into line with markets, we're going to end up looking at a world where we could see that scary cascade that you mentioned, Chris. We could end up with a world where the businesses either just start dropping coverage and say, we'll throw up our hands, hope that you government decide to cover all these people and deal with it, right? You couldn't afford that. You talk about the fight that they had to increase the subsidies for the ACA this past year. That was for a small pocket of the population. It's suddenly big employers, let's say Walmart or Amazon, decided they were not going to offer health insurance to their employees anymore. You talk about the millions of people who suddenly end up on the ACA market who are currently being covered and none of that cost is being accounted for by the federal government. So I think that this is a concern. It's something that I hear when I talk to business owners, whenever I travel around the country and talk to folks. And it's something that should give us some urgency to really try to come up with an innovative reform. If there's a way to help people use incentives in a better way to save money for themselves, stay just as healthy and to kind of bring down overall costs, we should be looking to do it. And that's really why we proposed the Patient's Right to Save Act, because we think it really will create the right incentives for patients, for doctors. It saves doctors a ton of time and effort. They don't have to wait for the insurance company to deny a claim five times before they'll pay it. And you know, it also, in the end, really will be better for the insurance companies because they can make more money. The insurance companies, you know, the, the medical loss ratio changes their incentive right now. But most of the people we've talked to think that you could write this bill in such a way that the cash savings get considered to be payments toward healthcare and not toward administrative expenses, which means the health insurance companies would actually be able to increase their profits even under the medical loss ratio regulations and laws. It's a brilliant and not enough people talk about the medical loss ratios. And I always tell people, if I'm mandated to only make a 4% profit margin, I'd rather have 4% of a million dollars rather than 4% of a hundred dollars. So therefore, I'm going to find ways to add to that top line so that I can get a bigger bottom line. Jonathan, one last question. I know I, I said that a lot and I break my promises every once in a while. If you had the opportunity to stick a billboard in front of every single state house, all 50 state houses, what message would you put up on that billboard? Oh, that's that's a great question, Chris. I think I would put up that price transparency is the first step, but we need more steps. I think something like that, where you remind the legislators that price transparency is important. It has to happen. We need price transparency from the healthcare insurers. We need the price transparency from the hospitals, from doctors. People need to know what it's going to cost them. But we need more than that. Once we've gotten to that step, we can't shake each other's hands and say, we've just done a great job. People know what the prices are. We've fixed healthcare in America. There's a lot more work that has to be done. And if we're not willing to do that work, all this fighting for price transparency is not going to do us a lot of good. Jonathan Wolfson, Chief Legal Officer, Policy Director of the Cicero Institute. Jonathan, thank you for spending time here with us on Healthcare Americana. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Really appreciate it. A lot of fun. That's going to do it for this episode. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. 
Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.